Welcome to the 10th episode of the Nerdum and Other Nonsense Anime Podcast, your go-to source for episodic synopsis reviews of most of the currently airing anime, or at least the good ones. We try. Uh, today, we'll be continuing to cover our 10 shows that we picked together through science and friendship in our first impressions episode. My name is Becom, and my favorite doujin is, oops, I got stuck on the lowly train. Also with me is Leo. Hmm, that's an interesting pick. I never saw that coming from you. You surprise me every day. Yes, especially from me. You you wouldn't think it, but it's actually extremely well written. Yeah, you just see lollies and everything. It's. I think it's. A, I think you need to get, go uh, talk to a therapist about that. It's scary. It didn't have quite enough fan service for my taste, but it was still pretty good. Mm. I also watched uh, Guardians of the Galaxy two just before we watched this, and like, I am. It's taking a lot of a uh, inner power to just not speak one-liners <laughs> so i'll do my best not to ruin anything <laughs> how was the uh lowly fan service in guardians volume two uh there was absolutely none oh wow well i mean no wonder it's getting terrible reviews uh-huh. and it's, also just sucks. like with every marvel movie stay through the credits okay cool yeah there's actually a couple scenes they like pepper and- the credits with it it's pretty good and you were saying it just it wasn't just funny. It was also like pretty emotional at times. Mm-hmm. Especially cool. towards the end, it gets start getting really emotional. And actually, I found out I cared about a character more than I thought I did. Because <laughs> even <laughs> I was like, mm, don't cry in the theaters. You're a man. Men don't cry. <laughs> <laughs> Real men cry, Leo. Real men cry. Uh-huh. Uh, <sighs> you know what made me cry? Watching some of this week's anime. So let's get into it. Oh, uh, yes. Starting on Sunday. <laughs> yes. Ticket. Yeah, this is uh, this is one of the rough ones this week was uh, Allison Zoroku, episode four, something not human. And I'm just going to say right off the bat, this was the hardest synopsis I had to write. I don't know why it was. It was very dialogue heavy. Uh, there was a minor amount of action. It was jumping from scenes to scenes to scenes. And then like I ended up just combining some of those scenes as I was writing my synopsis and it hurt anything at all. But I'm going to give it my best. So here we go. Okay. So we got Minnie C gloating to Alice how easy it was to capture. And at the same time, she's also t- getting this idea put into Alice's head that she's not a human and she should stop pe- pretending. And just, she's just throughout this whole episode constantly reinforcing Alice says that she is a monster. Mm-hmm. And then now we have Naoto explaining that Alice is not a typical human. So still human, but just different. And that people... Naito. Naito, Naito? Even, not Naoto. Yeah. Naoto. Naito. Whatever. Uh, and then that eventually people will start having powers like her soon. And his part of the government is concerned about society coexisting with people and uh, these how these powers will work with, you know, their society and whatnot. Um, and basically just watching how Alice works with uh Zoroku is kind of his project of learning how to, to do this. Uh Mini C, on the other hand, just views Alice as a weapon and something that should be exploited for the benefit of humanity. Uh, she goes on, she just get uh, a little bit of a backstory on Alice. So basically what happened 13 years ago, she was nothing more than this sudden phenomenon that occurred under the research, of fil- research facility. This is also the point where Alice is starting to believe she is just a monster uh, and yeah, many see administers like a shot to calm her down. And in the process, Alice is so afraid she wets herself. 
I almost are you, felt are you like, having I was gonna say are you having fun watching this anime yet no I was pretty disturbed and I felt like that was put in there for like people who get off on that I don't know if it was but I could see it yeah I mean it was it's not fun to see a little girl wedding herself because she's being tortured basically out of pure fear and being held down by the giant hands of mini seas is yeah I was uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, but sucked. just a little bit more on Alice. Basically, what happened was she suddenly just came into being on her own. She doesn't know how. She was just simply a thought. And then seeing humans, she kind of made the body in the process. And then she just slowly, you know, became more aware of herself and intelligence. Um, the shot seems to have put Alice to sleep, and she's having a dream. This was really strange of meeting a blonde florist just doing like a little bouquet and stuff. And like Alice asks if she knows her, she seems familiar for some reason. She doesn't know why. Um, mm-hmm. They do do the boob joke where she's not as big as everybody else. <laughs> yeah. God, every anime, it has to be in every single one. Yeah. Also so that-, that florist, like to me, like it's not hinted at or anything, but it seemed like it might have been like Alice's mother or what she imagines her mother might be like. Yeah, know? I almost thought it was like a future Alice also. Oh, that's also could be. Yeah. I mean, we it's this is all guessing at this point. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. But the blonde then goes ahead to say it's cheating, kind of cheating that Alice is even there talking to her. So, like, I don't know what's going on at this point. She's like some otherworldly being or whatnot. Uh, but the blonde does go ahead and give Alice some advice that she should call out the name of a strong person that she knows to help her. So, of course, Alice immediately thinks of Zoroku, who it then summons and teleports him instantly into the into the car that is in a shipping container that is on a truck that is about to be put on a boat. <laughs> it also seems to turn Alice's GPS tracker back on, but I think that was her activating her powers and they picked it up with the satellite stuff. Yeah. Cause they were tracking her signal earlier. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that was. I put GPS, but then after I thought about it, I was like, no, that was them detecting her powers activating the, so now we have this whole scene is a back and forth between Minisi and Soroku about whether or not it matters if you are a human does even matter what what's the big deal uh mini c at one point is like shut up old man and then just shoots alice in the goddamn leg and i was like as i was watching i went whoa because it was very sudden and yeah that was this pretty is, visceral this is and then now alice is gagged on the ground and she's like Wah! it's just it's really horrible to watch it i gave myself goosebumps remembering it yeah mm-hmm. Uh, but then alice kind of suddenly becomes very concerned for zoroku's safety and suddenly just and a show of power overpowers Minnie C's power and heals herself at the same time. She's free now, but she tells Minnie C, I'll go back if you just don't hurt Zoroku. And then like Alice falls asleep because she used too much of her power. Uh, there's just some more back and forth between the two. When Alice finally wakes up and Zoroku finally convinces her, it doesn't matter what you are. Just come back home with me. And then Ichijo Shizuku shows up and saves the day. End of episode. You got some more thoughts on this? Yeah. So when she's like, I understand that the director like wants to keep the camera moving probably, but it was really uncomfortable during the shots of Alice being held down, making muffled noises while she's gagged. And the camera is like panning up and down her body multiple times, like to show us her entire body. I just, 
don't I, that whole all of that stuff was uncomfortable like it was the point where i thought it was like borderline the director's intent to have this be a voyeuristic scene that we're supposed to be enjoying which it just didn't come off well for me uh scaring the shit out of a little girl to the point where she pisses herself not very entertaining <laughs> to watch no uh, so i was just dying for the show to move on and maybe then, maybe in a different like movie yeah it would be that it doesn't fit into like this world that they've built but yeah. like i could see this being in like some other like really gritty movies i've watched before where they, that wouldn't be out of place at all but this yeah, is maybe it's just too much of a tone shift yeah it's yeah. too out of place in this one and then like mini c uh, just shooting the little girl i mean this is what anime this season are sinking to for shock value just shooting little girls with guns <laughs> like and mini c is just such a coward um uh, and like Minisei tells Zoroku that the U.S. Japanese government plan is to study the dreams of Alice so they can re- reproduce their powers to build a new energy system, which is such <laughs> bullshit. What a stupid like no one would ever believe that. Um, and then, yeah, like the whole idea is just because she isn't human, Alice, she deserves to be treated like a lab subject. And that's just wrong in so many ways. Like this is likely the most powerful being humans have ever come across. She has the mind of a little girl, meaning she's extremely dangerous because she doesn't have morals and stuff yet. She doesn't understand the world. So, like, you would probably want to treat her with care and caution, not (laughs) make her out to believe that she's a monster herself. Like, that's exactly what you don't do. Man, Becom, you're just dishing out this common sense and the show doesn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) It's so dumb. Like, if you treat a little girl like she's a monster, she's probably going to grow up to become the monster you thought she might be. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's just it's just dumb. Uh, the part of the episode I liked was Zoroku's speech at the end, like just telling her to shut up because she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. Basically, <laughs> uh, that was pretty decent. I like Zoroku still, but uh, the rest of this, th- that that episode was pretty uncomfortable just in general. Well, just so you know, become uh, episode five. I like what it did and then where it went. And I hope it stays with where it went. If it did, it this anime would be redeemable okay well that's good to know i haven't it's something to look forward to so people still watching this don't drop it on this episode i suggest watching five and making your decision then okay cool uh let's move on to little witch academia uh we have episode 16 this week uh so it starts off with Akko telling Lote and Susie about the shiny rod and how she needs to bring back four more words and breathe life into them. Um, so she tries to search the internet for help by just, she just types into like their little Google, like words, like just that's the, that's her search term is just words. Like that's going to actually help. And uh, apparently they have dial up internet because it's way too slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's super slow. <laughs> that will snap me out of a coma dude (laughs) uh so akko then sees like a flashback in one of the rods crystals kind of it sort of shows her a flashback of young chariot and young professor kwa being told by professor woodward who's who was like that druid spirit type thing about the words uh And then back in the present, Ursula explains that the rod must be trying to tell Akko something about the next word, which is Mayanab Dishibudo. Akko tries repeating the word like a bunch of times, but it doesn't do anything. So Ursula tells her there's something that she severely lacks 
to see it through to breathe the word, uh, breathe life back into this word. And Susie's like, yeah, that narrows it down to just about everything because <laughs> Akko lacks like everything. Oh, I love uh, you, Susie. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Kraz like in her office slurping some instant noodles and she's testing different emotions for magical output. And she, she has like emotions in like different beakers kind of somehow. Uh, she finds that anger produces the most noir magic upon conversion. So. Yeah, and I was like, I guess I'm I'm just going to guess that we're going an explanation later on why she is wrong, and that love and hope always wins out, which is just a classic. I, I would not be surprised. That's definitely I'd, a good, good. I mean, if they're going with the emotions, that's I don't know where else they would go without quietly burying this and never explaining it again. Yeah, so but I'm fine girls- with that. I think it because this show needs to translate very well to. A more American audience. So I'm totally yeah. fine with it, sticking with it when it eventually comes out on Netflix. Uh huh. So uh, the girls head off to, I think, Finland, where Lote is from, to visit her home. Uh, she lives above a small shop that her parents own. Uh, her parents are kind of mismatched size wise. Her dad is like this huge, big, wide, burly dude who has a pipe hanging out of the corner of his mouth. And like he's got the same orange hair that Lote has. And the mom is tiny and has black hair and has like the same glasses and eyes as Lote. Uh, and she's got this like huge red and white striped headband on. So they're very finished. These two, they heat, they eat something called uh hapansilaka pies. And I looked this up and it's like the Finnish word for surströmming, which if you know that, that, that Swedish food is like one of the worst smelling and tasting foods on earth. Uh, so Akko takes like, like she takes one bite of this pie and basically starts dying. Uh, but Susie, of course, bites into it and she's like, oh, my God, I can't get enough of this. She's like in heaven, uh, which you would expect. Uh, continuing with the Finnish uh traditions, they go relax in a sauna out in the snowy landscape. And uh, Lote explains that her family's magic item shop has become more of just a kiosk since magical items don't really sell much anymore. Um, yeah, also, I just th- want to. There was yeah, just like what? a little table with magical items and the rest of the store was just like your go-to for everything else you need. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, just want to point this out is a, a version of a scene where girls are in a sauna that is not fan service at all because they're oh, completely yeah. covered by towels. There's literally no fan service in the scene whatsoever. So it is possible to have a sauna scene in an anime without fan service. I never knew that before. Uh, we see a, a single piece of the pies, like they go to sleep and like we see a, one of the pies like kind of bubbles up during the night. Uh, and then the girls awake to hear Lote screaming and finding her parents have turned into mossy green statues, as has their neighbor, Jana, who made the pies. Um, and Lote's mom had a book open in her hands to a passage about preventing green man disease. Uh, and so it turns out they've like come under this sort of like curse that like a million things had to be aligned in the just the wrong way for it's this so breakout to occur. <laughs> yeah, like the planets and like all these different things had to be aligned. And so the girls figure out from the book that five items are needed to make the antidote. They need snowflakes from a pine tree forest, berry leaves blown off by the wind, fresh reindeer droppings. A green panther cap mushroom and a traditional medicine base made by a yeti. 
so Akko and Lote head off to the snowy pine forest to get the snowflakes, and they at first are patiently waiting for the snowflakes to fall naturally because Lote's like, they need to fall naturally. It specifies that. Oh, did you did you catch the joke where like uh her father got knocked into and he was leaning over the fence and now it looked like he was kissing her? Oh no, the, I missed that. And then the mom, even though she was moss covered, like shuffles out and writes him back up. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I can't believe you missed that. <laughs> I missed it. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't I didn't catch that. Uh as they're waiting for the snowflakes to drop, like this like Finnish guy leads a cow through the foreground of the frame really slowly. And so Akko is obviously getting impatient, so she just kicks the tree, and she's like, I got it. It fell naturally. Uh, so they move <laughs> on to the next thing, uh, which is the berry leaves, and they're again waiting, and then Akko just sneezes really loud and blows some leaves off. She's like, don't worry about it. We got it. <laughs> uh, they need the reindeer droppings, but they can't find Nicholas and his reindeer. Uh, so they head back to the house, uh, and they've... But, like, and Susie made it back with uh, some of, like, the cap mushroom the panther cap or whatever but she's turned into a mossy statue also and then like as Aku's freaking out about that she turns around and sees that Lote is turning into one um so now it's all up to Akko, of course. So she like bribes this owl with food to get it to track down the reindeer and finds the reindeer, but has to chase after it like in a kind of like cartoony chase to get its droppings. It leads her to Nicholas, who's the guy who walked past the frame earlier. And he decides to help her get the fresh droppings from the reindeer. And like the reindeer like poops them out. Like <laughs> it's kind of funny. Just like a little ball into like a jar for her. So finally, the last item she needs is uh, from the Yeti, the medicine base. So Nicholas lets Akko borrow the reindeer sled to get to the mountain where the Yeti lives. And she gets there and like she starts begging the Yeti to make the base. But he's like lazy and really grumpy. Uh, and he finally agrees, but he like makes the wrong shape. And then Akko just keeps complaining every time he makes a new, slightly different medicine base. Uh, and he just doesn't get it right. And eventually he just gets pissed and starts like checking his phone instead of doing the work. Uh, and so he gets tired of Akko yelling at him and he literally just like runs out of his front door, like leaving a hole in the door. Uh, and when Akko catches up to him, like she chases after him, uh, he shows her that his phone has like all of these mean things that people have been saying about Yetis online that hurt his feelings and it's really affecting his work. So Akko just like gives him a pep talk. And it's like, you can do this. And he finally gets really happy and he makes the medicine base, except it's like super big for some reason. Uh, the only problem is even though Akko has all the ingredients, the reindeer sled like left. I guess the reindeer just went back to Nicholas. So Akko now has to trudge back home through the snow and she's beginning, she's looking at her hands and they're starting to turn into moss and she doesn't know if she can make it. And she almost loses her determination, but she sees Chariot and her friends in a vision uh, and just hearing their voices helps her push through. And then Nicholas, who we're finding out now is jolly old Saint Nick, because he shows up in like a Santa Claus outfit, or at least uh, Akko envisions him that way. He finds her and picks her up. Uh, and I was kind of disappointed at this point that somebody helped Akko, because I thought the thing that she was missing was either self-determination or broom flying skills. I thought this was like a perfect opportunity for her to like be so determined that she finally pulls out her broom and can fly. But I guess that's not going to happen yet. Yeah, um, but they were also... They, were, they wouldn't have any magic while they were there. 
Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Right. Uh, so Akko is like stirring up the ingredients when she makes it back uh, and she realizes that the thing she really does severely lack is patience because you have to stir these ingredients for a very long time until the color of the potion turns rainbow. Uh, so she's like recites the word from before as she's stirring and realizing that she needs to be patient and her shiny rod turns into like a sprinkler system which sprays the potion over everybody and they all turn back to normal and celebrate. Uh, so yeah, that's the end of the episode. So they're, she's getting these words knocked out pretty quickly now. Yeah, so it seems. Um, um, I don't have anything else to add. It's just a fun episode to watch. Yeah, it was just a sort of self-contained episode, getting one more of the words. Mm-hmm. Um, Qua still seems to be up to like some sneaky things, but that's about it. Yeah, I kind of want to see Susie's family now, too. <laughs> Oh, God, me too. <laughs> just if they're just as messed up. They will be. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Let's moving on to Mondays. We have Grimoire of Zero. And as it is aptly titled for episode three, Duel is because what Becom and I are going to do at the end of this one. We have, yeah, we a, have different opinions on this. Opposing so opinions. You, yeah. Yes. Why don't you just make it all the way through your synopsis and then I we am. can talk. And then we can do a little discussion. Uh, we can just get a quick info dump on the Beast Fall. Not really any new information. It's more just like a clarification of it all. Um, but then we have the, our three protagonists are walking down a stone paved road on their way to the uh, gates of Formicum. To get in, you need a pass of uh, some sorts. But uh, since Mercenary is what he is called, says he's on his way to the capital because they're hiring mercenaries for witch hunts. Uh, the guards still question him about his two companions and he doesn't really have anything to say after a few seconds. He's like trying to quickly think of a backstory when Zero just instantly chimes in. We're sex slaves. <laughs> and then even Albus jumps in and plays his part about servicing him at night. And the guards faces, even like mercenaries faces are just priceless. They're like, they're children. <laughs> but of course, when they get in, mercenary bonks him right on top of the head. <laughs> He's like, you guys are idiots. Now they all think I'm a pervert. So Zero's attire has seen better days. Uh, been the star of many plays. I've seen better days. And the bottom drops out. Oh, That's God. Just, I was watching. I was, as I was writing this, I wrote that and immediately went into <laughs> lyric mode. And I was like, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> so Mercenary suggests uh, she gets some better clothes. And if she has any money. She pulls a bunch of gems out of her pouch that immediately causes Mercy and Albus to like freak out. They're like, oh, no way around that much money. That does, does ridiculous amount. Because before she used to live underground. So I guess it makes sense she would have gems. Uh, Mercenary tells her to sell the smallest one for money. So they finally get to the clothing shop. And of course, the shopkeeper is being very accommodating since she has money. I would I was first to assume um, so Zero finally finds an outfit that is sturdy and light and perfect for travel. Mercenary tells the shopkeeper to ring them up and Zero to go change, which she then proceeds to just completely strip naked in the middle of the shop. You get a big old butt shot. Um, <laughs> hold back, be calm, we'll come back. Hold mm-hmm. hold, hold yourself. Um, after a stunned second, Mercenary wraps her up in her outfit and basically bowling balls her into the dressing room. That was pretty funny. I liked that. Yeah. Uh, the shopkeeper replies with a, I can die a happy man now. So he's a lowly con. Uh, in return, the shopkeeper accepts her old traveling attire as payment because he is a perv. Um, are you still okay, Be calm. 
Uh, yeah, and just uh, uh, who else is in the shop behind the shopkeeper? There's the his two. Yeah. I'm guessing uh, workers at the two female workers at the shop who have the most horrified looks on their faces because they're like, "This isn't right." Okay, that'll be important later. Yes, it will. <laughs> I was gonna say it to them. I'll say it now. I felt like I was arguing my point of view, but anyways, um, they're having trouble finding an inn to stay at, whether it's that they're fully booked or they only service humans. Um, Zero wonders why everybody has problems with the beast fallen. Uh, mercenary tells her it's because that sometimes they can get urges to eat people and well, it, they describe it as it comes on like a seizure would. So that's, it's something like, so if it were to happen to mercenary, I'm assuming he would have no control over it. It would just happen which is how a seizure works. Uh, so that cues boar guy in the alley looking like he's getting ready to eat a woman. Turns out it was a slave and the boar was just trying to scare her. Uh, Wolfman comes up with two other gorgeous looking ladies in his company and they are clearly look like they do not want to be there. Um, I had the other girl was a slave and he just takes her and they walk away. They finally find an inn and after a quick supper, Albus uh, just basically passes out. You know, like you do when you eat a bunch of food at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mercenary starts to sneak away when Zero catches him, and they end up drinking at a bar together. Uh, Zero has drank like I count. I pause the screen and counted. She's drank seven mugs of beer. She and, would have like died from that. Like, look at her body <laughs> size compared yeah, to and how I was much beer to say, she had. The size of her body, and she is completely wasted the shot, and she should be. That's who. <laughs> Uh, so lo and behold, wolf guy shows up and after a quick sniff of zero suddenly seems very interested in her. Uh, he says he will trade his three witches for, uh, mercenaries one. According to wolf guy, he's been hiding them from the church. So mercenary obviously refuses and the wolf man leaves, which, uh, suddenly zero has quickly sobered up and states that those women he had with him were not witches. They are both disgusted by this and clearly look like they plan to do something about this. Guess what? <laughs> Mercenary goes to break the girls out when he is confronted by the Wolfman. Uh, they go outside to have a talk when Wolfman challenges him to a sword fight with the prizes being all the women. Um, Zero sitting on a rooftop right next by and she accepts on Mercenary's behalf. Um, of course, Mercenary wins and sets the girls free. Uh, uh, let me just say one. Uh, let me interject here because you not didn't like be the fight. Of, yeah, the fight was terrible. Uh, so Mercenary literally just holds his sword in front of him up at like vertically. And the Wolfman just like bangs his sword back and forth. Like that's the entire choreography of the <laughs> fight. Mercenary does not even move the sword. And then like mercenary just like grabs him with his mouth like bites him and then just like throws him that's the whole fight it was so bad so bad and also I, when we get to rage of bahamut later that's a real sword fight but anyway. <laughs> oh my god i didn't care about it either way yeah. uh did you see the sword fight in little witch also yeah that was also fantastic yes but so that, anyways, that's next week's episode of little witch yeah, yeah. i just want to make a quick note uh blonde chick with hair falling over one eye i don't know why but it just drives me crazy like i think it's one of the sexiest things a woman can do in my opinion but she was like a slave God. damn it Leo. i wasn't looking at her as a slave well Jesus. i was look i'm looking at her character design i didn't say anything about her being a slave she looked is hot. Like horrif- so i because I, I read that you wrote that and i was like watching the episode and i was like man she looks like really horrified right now i feel bad for her and no Leo's but there's a the little wow, scene afterwards sexy. where they get to where they're free and they don't have the horrified looks on their face. It's based off that scene. God. Yeah. Okay. okay Jesus, fine. dude. 
Um, <laughs> we're okay. Through a little dialogue, we find out that the witches that witches can only tell if other people are witches. So there's no way Wolfman would have known. I'm guessing this is going to be important maybe later on. Uh, yeah. Quick scene with Zero looking at Mercenary sleeping, and she has this very very evil look on her face. So <laughs> he wakes up the next day and finds her sleeping on top of him. She really like likes Albus like man. freaks out. Like Albus is like, "What are you doing? You're the like depths of depravity." <laughs> and and he's like, "I'm gonna take your head." And then like uh, yeah, Zero's like, "No, his head belongs to me." And I so, like, like all up. the jokes in the thing. It, it, even the ones where Zero sexualizes herself, and I think it's important that's only her sexualizing herself i disagree i'm totally fine with that and uh, oddly enough the I, the show is written in a, a certain way and i've been reading uh i don't know for whatever reason i've been on this kick of reading just female novels and then my kindle just automatically throws in the next fantasy female author and i just go with it but there, it's different than what a guy and you know it's more from a female's point of view and i thought the show was really coming from a female's point of view and after a lot of looking up and then Becom not even sure himself still doing a lot of looking up. We finally found out that we were pretty sure the author for this original light novel is a female. So I was right on that front. Indeed. But it is still a light novel. Well, <laughs> and, and because so, of that, it has some shitty light novel tropes. Yeah. So like zero other than the lolly guy from the shop who, and like I said, with the women behind him, clearly, saying to you that this is wrong is what they're getting the message across they're just and you called it lampshading which is it's kind of mm. i read the article it was kind of half and half i agreed with it but basically yeah. the author's throwing in there because she knew it would be popular but then she also put her own opinion in there that like you yes. know this is still wrong yeah to a certain extent but like okay so let's let's start from the beginning so the first issue i had with this episode is when uh, Zero says that she and Albus are his sex slaves because again that's Zero sexualizing herself there's layers it's also to this the dude. author it's the author of the light novel also sexualizing Zero as a character for the audience reading the light novel and Correct. the anime crowd I mean so it's both at the same time I understand that it is Zero thinking on her feet but also she could have just said we're slaves they didn't have to be sex slaves. But then there wouldn't be a joke. Yeah, but is it a joke worth telling uh, yes, about like, I these fallen fucking children? <laughs> like because Alice. it plays into the rest of the episode with the wolf guy having his own concubines or whatever. And the thing is, like, Zero, like, doesn't know anything about the world. So how did she even come up with that? Like, she doesn't even know what a kiss is, we find out later. <laughs> In the next episode. Yeah. Like, so how did she know about sex if she doesn't know what a kiss is? Uh, how she did she know knows about sex she was conceived somehow. Uh, That's I think true. It's, I think That's it's true. next episode where, yeah, they're talking about parents, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I won't, um, I won't mention that then. But uh, anyway, uh, I didn't and like And her it. humor's really, a lot of the times, it's a, it's a dry humor. And yes. either you do or you don't get dry humor. And I do get dry humor. And once and once you do really get into it and learn a little bit about it, it's some of the funniest stuff out there. I love dry humor. I just don't love dry pedophilia humor. Well, and that's my other thing. I wouldn't (laughs) say zero is pedophilia because to me, she seems either 16 or over the age of 16. She has just enough curves to not be underaged. And like 
she may look tiny, but she's also standing next to the biggest beast fallen in this world. That's true. But she's also standing next to uh, Albus, who she's just barely taller than and who she always refers to as a child because he is a child. So she's almost the size of a child in this world as well. Well, uh, uh, just let me say this. I'm five, six. If I shaved off my beard and stood next <laughs> to you, I would look like a child. <laughs> uh, okay i guess that's a good, that's a fair point like so i think height wise you have a you have a point and like curves wise you also have a point uh and also the way she acts is wise beyond her years they've been very careful not to disclose her age like i would say that she is very perfectly designed to walk the line between just a bit too young. I believe and so. Just barely. Not so that the or reader, or in this case, the watcher can put her where they want her to be, which and, me, yeah. of course I put her over the age of 16. <laughs> and like, yeah, I was on Reddit and somebody posted the scene from the manga where she strips down in the clothing store and has she a manga has, too. Yeah. There's a manga. I, it's either, I think it was from the manga at least. And, uh, she has no chest in that. Like in, in the manga, she is very clearly lowly designed. Ooh. In the anime, they have curved her up very slightly. But I would still, in my opinion, this is just like opinion. I know Leo has a slightly different opinion. Like to me, she still looks like a, like a young girl and like is very much in the realm of lowly. But I could see how it's borderline. Um, but yeah, so to get to the lampshading part. So that's what I was saying about there's two women that work for this tailor who is like drooling over scene uh, <laughs> zero naked because uh, he, he's like, I could die happy now is so he's just you're self inserting into his point of view, I guess. Uh, and so the two women, they don't get to talk or anything. They just are in the back of the shop and they're kind of disgusted at him for the way that he's looking at zero. And then the way he like sniffs her like old ratty cloak. And yes, that is, it's the show admitting that what's going on is in bad taste. Yep. But at the same time, they also showed this scene like, so you can't just say, oh, it's bad taste, but we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. But so then, enjoy. like I said, I'm still going with that zero. She did that to herself. It's not like she dropped the sheet by accident or the shopkeeper started stripping him herself. She just dropped it. She's lived in a cave. She just it's just one of her. She doesn't know how to behave in society. It's just like Arara Meirocho from last season where the main character was raised by animals in the forest. So in the first episode, she I comes, heard you describe that. That I don't yeah. think that's a good comparison. That shows it's how perfect, bad. Oh, no, it's, a, it's exactly the same thing you're saying is that she doesn't know how to act in society. So she sexualizes herself too much. And then she, and then she asks, show, oh, what, you haven't seen a naked woman before? This show she doesn't did it realize quickly societal norms. So she and dropped like it. This. But that show like kind of drug it out. From what I heard from you, and I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, they showed less in that show. I would also just say that Zero's new outfit that she buys is like completely built for fan service. I was comparing it to the outfits in Akashic Records, where everybody complains about with the garter straps, and this doesn't have the suspenders and garter belt, but it actually shows the more skin. It has midriff, it has the zetai ryoki, and it also has a cut, like cut around the low shoulder look. So it actually shows more skin than the Rokinanashi uniforms do. At least Zero chose this outfit for herself, unlike a Bastard Records, where like. The school is forcing the girls to wear those uniforms. <laughs> well, and she That's justified the, the buy. She said it was uh, light and rugged. 
So yeah, yeah, and there's something that goes over her top, but yeah, uh, and I don't know. So all of these things for me are signs that the show is moving towards fan service a little too much for my taste, and not enough towards story. Uh, the only other thing I noticed when I was like rewatching episodes <laughs> is they eat uh, sandwiches at the end of this, and they eat this Ebelbor meat. And in the first episode, Mercenary said when they were taking down an Ebelbor that it's forbidden to hunt them. Uh, when they asked, when Zero asked if they taste good, so apparently it's forbidden to hunt them, but they're now eating them. I fun. I remember that also. I don't know what that was about. Yeah, that just seemed like oversight to me. Uh, to, to give you a sense of how much I dislike this episode, I had this show ranked <laughs> in <nitpicking>. eight. <laughs> I had this show ranked in eight going into this episode, and I now have it ranked a three. That is how much I dislike this episode. So, yeah. I thought you were going to talk about how they eat the sandwiches. Oh, no. I just... Uh, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so, they have the sandwiches, like, vertical. So, like, the opening of the sandwiches is straight up towards the top of their mouth. Who eats sandwiches like that? That's so weird. I don't know, but whatever. Maybe I should make it a two now. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> okay. All I have to add is uh, I just really like how this show is written and the new point of views on some old tropes. Uh, and just yay, female writers. I think there's multiple layers to this show. Um, and you got to get past that first layer to see all the good stuff underneath. But yeah, I hope it, I hope it starts getting into the story uh, a little bit more soon. I think it, we think it will, but yeah. Uh, okay. Let's move on to Wednesdays and Sakura quest uh, episode four, the lone alchemist. Uh, so the girls are helping Sane move out of her apartment uh, when noti- uh, Yoshi notices this beautiful Ranma, uh, which is a traditional wood carving that kind of hangs over the entryway to one of her rooms. Uh, and Shiori explains that a Ranma carving is one of Manoyama's traditional arts, which they're famous for. So uh, in a later scene, Oribe, who is Ririko's grandmother, comes to Kadada's office to scold him for getting Ririko caught up in this stupid government thing by giving her as a role as a minister. Uh, I love Kadata and Ririko's guardian's relationship. They're just constantly like screaming at each other all the time. Uh, <laughs> and it's just like, they're the best. Uh, meanwhile, the girl's truck has broken down. Uh, so they go to a mechanic named Dokushima, who they call Doku. Uh, and when they get outside, uh, Yoshi notices this weird blinking box that says touch. And she touches it and it transforms into this jukebox like vending machine. And then Doku comes rushing out. He's like this short guy. He's like yelling at her. How do you get it to start? How do you get it to start? And he's like, you must have some like acid on your hands that I don't have. It's so weird. Uh, he says he has like dry hands. Yeah. So she has like the proper oils on her hands. So that's why activate activated by touch. It's really weird that it wouldn't just activate based on like pressure or something, though. Uh, well, I mean, you, our smart smartphones work by uh, it senses the electricity in your hands. Oh yeah. So if you did have some kind of skin condition, it could potentially not want to work for you. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so Doku eventually gets their truck back up and running pretty quick. Uh, and since they're in the middle of moving, uh, he gives them a prototype he's built for a powered exoskeleton. So this Doku guy is like a mad scientist. Uh, and Yoshino uses it to like lift boxes as they move Sanai's stuff into the cabin where they're going to live. 
And Ruriko is like watching her super jealously. And Yoshi's like, oh, do you want to use this next? So like Ruriko loves this power suit so much that like in a later scene, like she's using it to eat dinner <laughs> with like chopsticks at the t- dinner table. It's so funny. It's like so strong, though, like as she grabs like a bean with her chopsticks, it like skips out of her grip and like jumps in front of Sane, who thinks it's another bug and starts freaking out again. Yeah, uh, Ruriko, I mean, it's kind of you kind of saw it before now but definitely in this episode you see that she's basically kind of the otaku in the group group she's the one knowledgeable about you know technology and all that fun stuff and oddly enough uh that power suit doesn't affect her finger strength so that scene made no sense to me i i picked up on yeah. it most people probably wouldn't but i'm like okay whatever move on i noticed that too yeah <laughs> but you know whatever i i went with it yeah. um uh, so yeah, and then Ririko like goes home that night and like Oribe, her grandmother says to her like, hey, it's okay that you're working with the queen, but just you need to tell me what you're doing. And she's like, okay, yeah, grandma. Uh, so the next day the girls head to the wood carving district and they find this shop run by two men who are also both relative newcomers to the town. Tatsuo is one of them. He's this friendly guy and he's from Osaka originally. Um, the other guy's name is Kazushi and he's like really gruff and aloof and doesn't really want to talk to them. And he's dark from and brooding. Hokkaido. Uh, he's also a very, very talented wood sculptor, though, and they see him sculpting a Ranma in the shop. No, uh, Sane, you're my waifu. You can't be his. Okay, <laughs> Sane definitely <laughs> notices him. Uh, the girls try to come up with a PR strategy to show off Manayama's wood carving. Uh, but the problem is that modern houses aren't really built with Ranma in mind and like other tiny wood carvings like they used to put on top of their big fat CRT televisions but modern TVs are too thin to put a little sculpture on top of so they're trying to think of a way to like modernize this art um, they have a town meeting about their plan and Oribe like pushes back saying that the sculptors are like committing blasphemy and just like should have pride in their traditional art and not wasn't it the Merchant's Guild? Yeah, I think it's the Merchant's Guild. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. Uh, the girls, like, keep struggling to come up with an idea. They're at the grocery store, and they see Doku, and he's got this, like, powered claw attached to his grocery cart that, like, reaches out onto shelves and, like, brings, like, items back and puts them in a cart for him. It's pretty nice. Yeah, and I want to say this is how you do... This is how I like to see CG in shows. Oh, yeah. Is when it's representing something else entirely doesn't fit like it's representing the machine yeah and unlike with uh just to bring up kado real quick like they would have an animated character and then a cg character standing next to each other and there was no reason to be having to do that yeah yeah exactly but then like there's like other shows where like everything's animated but then like the monsters are cg and that still makes sense to me because they're supposed to be I guess otherworldly a little bit. Yeah, that's true. I just think it's a good example of how to do it right. Yeah, I barely even noticed that that was CG actually. Yeah. So um, Yoshi gets the idea to combine Doku's powered exosuit with a wood carved decoration in order to modernize this art form. Uh, so they go to the sculptor's shop and Kazushi is like clearly against the idea. He doesn't say anything, but he acts kind of upset. Uh, he, like, but Tatsuo, slams a tool down or something. 
Yeah, he needs to calm down. He's Tatsu brooding. Is, <laughs> but he, he has a good reason for why he's upset in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tatsu is into it, so they make a prototype, and Shiori's dad like puts on the suit and, and tests it out. And he's like having fun. He's like waving his arms over the place, and he backs up a little bit, and this like sharp piece of wood on his shoulder like gets stuck in a bag of feed or something, and it all starts pouring out. So that plan didn't really work out so well. Which was a terrible idea if you asked me in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't so great. Uh, their next plan is to make a wood carving that will fit around one of Doku's vending machines. So they make this like giant Buddha that fits around a vending machine and like opens up. It actually looks kind of cool. Like I, th- I would think that's a kind of cool idea, but mm-hmm. Kazuji sees it and he's furious. And we see at the merchants uh, guild or whatever, Oribe saying that it's blasphemy and this is an art form that's protected by government. Uh, and Kadada wisely says, one of the conditions for traditional art forms is they have to be a viable industry. And at this rate, the, you know, that we're going, the Ranma are not going to be viable anymore. So they have to do something. Uh, and at this point, they're like squabbling back and forth. And that weird blonde hippie dude walks in and he's like, would a cat bite? And then he's, they're like, what? He's like, well, when it comes to quarrels between couples, dogs would never bite. And then they just both scream at the, him for like, like insinuating that they would ever be a couple. They're both pissed. Uh, so that was funny. Uh, Sane goes back to the shop to apologize to Kazushi one more time. And he scolds her saying that she probably just ran away from something difficult in Tokyo when she came to Maniyama. But on the other hand, when he came here, he knew exactly what problems he was going to be facing. And he tells Yoshino that no one asked her to make wood carving popular. He's kind of being a dick and Yoshino is trying to like talk back. And he points out like she doesn't even know what kind of wood they're using to carve the Ranmas. So how could she even say anything about wood carving or try to make it popular? So Sane and Yoshi are totally defeated and walking home and Sanae admits that uh, Kazushi might have been right about her because she was kind of running away from Tokyo. She'd been wor- working herself to the bone and like literally put herself into the hospital from overwork. And she was so worried about getting back to work. But when she got back, she realized that somebody else just simply covered for her and there was no problem whatsoever. And so when she moved out to the country, she realized she wanted to do something where her work would would be irreplaceable and when she looks at what Kazushi does car- his carving skills he she realizes that he's someone whose work is irreplaceable and she can't do anything like that uh, so she tells Yoshi that she's not really putting her heart into it and then she can't be a minister anymore and that's where the episode ends so we got some drama mm-hmm. uh, I like this episode a lot the girls are all established now and they have a real problem to solve and they didn't immediately solve it like they ran into some real problems and I like this whole theme of like tradition versus innovation in rural society and how people are going to butt heads over that of course it's a really difficult issue yeah just a note on that uh, the old guy in Ryuko's uh, grandma totally Mm -hmm. represent uh, tradition and uh, re-innovation of stuff Definitely. That's totally what their two characters are. It's it's good writing and just plain as day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, why don't we move on? Uh, just one more thing. I'm no longer worried about the show making it 25 episodes after watching this one. I can see how they can easily hit that mark. Oh, really? Just one episode later? <laughs> yeah, it, it, I didn't I didn't see where this was going. Yeah. And I felt like it was going to start falling flat. But no, if they keep up what they did with this episode, they'll have no problem. Yeah, it was it was a well-written episode. I agree. 
All right, move on to Buso Shoujo Machiavellianism. Yay, episode four. Did you wa- actually watch this? I did. I watched it yesterday. <laughs> oh, man. It's called the Warabi. Oh, it's that's the Warabimpics. It's, it's kind of yeah, like Wara the Warabimpics. The there we go. I was like, was yeah. this spelled right? Our starting. So we have Ren and Mary fighting over whose responsibility is to watch is to watch after Nomura because they're both madly in love with him. You know how that works. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Later on, he's sitting down eating his lunch when he tells the girls like they're still arguing. They're on top of the roof and they're still arguing, arguing. And he's like he's sitting down so he can see their panties. and He like tells them both that you're flashing me. So, of course, they attack him. Mm-hmm. No surprise there. So our little blonde lolly with a bear has just gotten back from Hawaii and is a witnessing this attack on Roof. She says, this will not stand. I'll take care of this. Uh, so, well, Robbie has declared that Ren and Mary both be added to the in need of corrections list. Mm-hmm. She takes it upon herself to dole out this so-called correcting and apparently, Rorabe has strung up Mr. Bighead on a cross and declares the festival of blood, the sports festival, de- the Rorabe Olympics. <laughs> oh, this show is funny to me. And I, I hear Beacom growing. Yeah, dude. Oh, my God. She does that. Don't, don't mind me. I'm just going to make some <laughs> random sounds during this review. The entire, the entire episode, she's doing that. Uh, oh, yeah. Of course, my next line is this girl is so full of herself. <laughs> for that purpose Robbie says that if he wants to save Big Head he has to participate in this event and she will also give him her stamp if he wins Robbie now summons what she calls her three musketeers Coco. I'm not even going to bother with her introduction short hair blue hair and glasses <laughs> yes and basically just this whole time just every 10 seconds they drop that in there Ke <laughs> It's so annoying. I like I'll just continue, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the first challenge is uh raging sumo. So of course they all have to wear the mawashi. I learned about sumo watching this episode, interestingly <laughs> enough. That's the sumo diaper looking things. Listeners are wondering. Uh the three musketeers are taunting them about having to wear them, but it can be difficult to tie one tie one. But of course Taiwan, Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I almost said. I was like, what is wrong? But of course, Nomura does this easily. He already knows how. Um, Ren and Mary ask him for help with theirs. Cue etchy, almost bondage scene of him putting them on over Ren's bloomers. Like, I laughed my God. ass off. He like really got it up in her butt crack. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, dude, it that's why I said very bondage. detailed scene of him like really getting it up there. So yeah, enjoy Not that. just up her butt, just smashed up against her snatch and oh man it's like if crazy you if you didn't see enough uh little girl bloomer butt shots and strike <laughs> witches this this scene is up your alley <clears throat> okay uh as we assume nomaru assumes he would be finding one of the three musketeers but instead her big old bear drops from the ceiling wearing a mawashi <laughs> oh, this is where my note is. I would yep. like to know all the haughty toddy laughs this episode are way over this week's quota. Shoo, 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 shoo. <laughs> Dude, I was like, how could you do this? It was like every other line. Like they were just like, key, key, key. They could have spread this one shoo, episode's shoo, 
sounds over the entire series and it still would have been way over quota it was so ridiculous oh my god i that's kind of the way the show makes me laugh is because it does just over the top stuff and it knows it's doing it and they're like let's just keep doing this let's play this joke straight into the ground until there's nothing left of it yeah. Uh, well robbie says that if uh, any of them can beat her bear she will let all three of them off the hook uh the match was actually entertaining yeah i i say it was a pretty decent fight scene um his spirit bullet and like he does like slaps and leg sweeps and it's like very detailed but Nomura eventually ends up picking like the bear up from behind and it's getting like very dramatic he kind of gives the bear like a wedgie with the mawashi basically <laughs> well i mean if you've ever seen sumo that's that's exactly yeah. what it looks like. Yeah, and he's like picking it up and he's basically getting ready to throw him out of bounds when the bear's Mawashi slips and he just slowly sets him back down and they're all just kind of stand there and stun sounds for like, well, that got really dramatic and just stopped. But then the bear's Mawashi falls off and there's a rule called Fujo Make. Like I said, I learned about sumo watching this show, which is <laughs> not what I expected, which is lost by Mawashi unraveling also co- called Morodashi. Uh, Robbie is very upset by this and declares it's not, this isn't a game anymore. It's war. And I swear we just had this line last season and I'm I've forgotten. Sure show. Yeah. Um, I'm, and uh, I would I believe that, it though. <laughs> I put that note here because there was something it made me think of, but now I've forgotten what show that was. There was like one point in this episode where Rurabi is like talking to Nomura before the fight starts. <laughs> yes. And doing that. And, but she's like, Oh, and also I'll give you your permission st- slip stamp. But it's like, how would she even know that she want he wants that yet? Cause she, at that point in the episode, hadn't talked to him or Mary or Rin. So how does she know that he wants that? I was kind of confused. Like maybe she just assumes he wants it. I don't know. I, I just kind of assumed that like everybody on campus knows at this point. And it yeah. was just one of the first things she learned about when she got back. Uh, there's one scene I didn't like where like Nomura's just standing behind Rin and Mary as they're talking. He's just like picking his nose. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> is this what passes for humor in this show today? <laughs> like, come on. And then like we said, I was annoyed by all the repetitive kiki-ki stuff. But uh, she, 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 she. Yeah, like watching this whole episode and like even the scene where the dude is giving a giant bear a wedgie. Like I didn't, I didn't really laugh watching this episode. I was just kind of like yeah okay i didn't even see the wedgie scene as a laugh because like i said it's yeah that's what happens in sumo they pick each other up like that so it was just like a regular sumo move yeah that scene was funny for me because it was getting all dramatic and he's had his big speech and then it slipped and he just kind of set it down and everybody's like standing there awkwardly like well that (laughs) was over climatic Anyway, it looks like uh, Nomura is probably going to fight Wararbi next episode and then sexually assault her. So we'll be, we can look forward to that. <laughs> I'm so glad I picked this show. <laughs> all right. Uh, anything else on that one? Uh, nope. That's all I got. Okay. Moving on to Thursdays and Tsukigakire. Uh, yeah. Episode four. This episode starts out with the students getting ready to take a train on a field trip. Uh Akane uh, makes eye contact with Kotaro when he shows up, and we flash back to what happened as he confessed at the end of last episode. Uh, Akane told him that she doesn't really know like, if she wants to go out with him yet. She's 
she's just hesitant. Uh, so she asks him for some time to give a proper answer, and they've apparently barely talked since then because they're awkward middle schoolers. Uh, so as the kids are getting ready to go to the on the field trip, the freaking fascist teachers like look through every one of their bags and like look for like items to confiscate like they take away away students cell phones and all this stuff which doesn't make any sense to me if they're going to like a city they don't know you're gonna take away the kids cell phones if they get lost what are they supposed to do i had that exact same thought i was like that's the last thing you don't want them to have exactly it's so ridiculous even as a Uh, teacher that's your advantage like if you're trying to find them you can just call call one of them yeah um so anyway um some of the students are able to sneak their phones in like Akane's friends were able to sneak them in like some of them just hid them in their underwear and there's like a couple kids on the bus who are like laughing at that uh and then Roman who was Kodoro's friend snuck them in in this bag of chips that he resealed with tape very sneakily so Kodoro's happy because he's got his phone so if Akane chooses to respond to him uh, and let him know the answer he'll have a phone Uh, So it turns out they're heading to Kyoto and they get off at Kyoto Station and they go sightseeing at what looked like a Kiyomizu-dera temple, which is it has like this huge, beautiful view overlooking all of Kyoto. Unfortunately, when I was in Japan a few weeks ago and in Kyoto, I knew this was going to lead back to this. (laughs) Well, I was just in Kyoto. So I was like, oh, I recognize all this shit. It was really cool. Uh, but anyway, Akane and her friends pick up relationship fortunes at the shrine and Akane says, you have excellent luck and that for romance, ambiguity brings calamity, which is definitely going to be the theme of this episode. Uh, so I thought that was a little too front and center. Yeah. A couple, like when he read a book in the previous episode and it was like exactly on the nose for what was going on with him. There's a couple, a couple moments like that. It's been too on the nose. Um, Mm -hmm. Chinatsu and Akane meet up to pick out some souvenirs for the track team. Uh, then Chinatsu sees Kodoro in the front of the store and she runs up to say hi and ask him to pick up a gift that like boys would like. Akane is like still too scared to talk to him, so she kind of hides in the back, but she gets jealous watching. She's confused that. about her adolescent feelings. Yeah, she's very confused. Uh, but she also gets jealous of Chinatsu and how easily Kotaro is able to talk with her and smile and laugh. Uh, she's kind of pissed and she kind of storms off and Kotaro sees her leaving. Uh, that night, Kotaro's laying on his futon. He's just staring at his cell phone, waiting for a line message to come. Uh, and in Akane's room, her friends are pretending to be asleep as their advisor like comes by to check on them. But as soon as she's gone, they wake up and start talking about I want to say their sleeping positions in that scene were very elaborate. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, they, I mean, if you look like one of them's like halfway hanging out with like her legs sticking out at a weird angle and they're all in these like crazy different positions. It was just it like it legit looked like a group of kids sleeping because that's what they look like. They're all these just absolute <laughs> random uh, poses. They're so really like, good. Fake as sleepers. middle schoolers, I was like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> they know what I'm impressed. <laughs> um, so basically, the girls are all like, Akane, is there anybody you're interested in? Uh, and she says, actually, there is somebody I'm curious about. And they get all excited, of course. And they're like, they just assume that it's Hira from the track team. And she basically tries to say no, but they both, they all still think that it's him. Uh, and then a couple guys come by the girl's room, like some different guys that we don't even know. And they distract her, Akane's friends. So she finally, at that moment, gets a text from Kodoro just asking her what's up. And she responds. And then Kodoro asks her what she's doing tomorrow during free time. 
And as he's doing this, like he's texting back and forth with her, Roman grabs his phone away like a stupid kid would. And like, it's like the worst time that he could possibly grab the fucking phone. This is exactly what happens in middle school. Yeah, and his uh, other buddy puts him in a headlock, right? Yeah, and then he's trying to figure out like the password, and he's like, oh, it's just his birthday, probably. So, like, they get it open, but like, he gets his phone back and he runs into the hallway and he texts Akane, like, meet me in front of this department store at 12 noon. And then, as soon as he texts that and gets it sent, his teacher comes walking by and confiscates his phone. So, he doesn't know if she gave him an answer or anything. And then the next day, they like, Akane is like kind of confused because she texted him back and got no response. Um, uh, and then each of their groups of friends wants to do different things with them. So before they can talk to each other, they all they both go off with their own friends and miss having a chance to clarify what the hell is going on. So Akane is going off and their friends are doing stuff, but she's completely anxious about whether she should go and meet up with Kotaro. And as it gets closer and closer to noon, she keeps she says that she needs to go somewhere and her friends are like, where do you need to go? And like and then like they're like, why is she hiding something from us? We're her friends. But eventually, I liked that her friends just realized we're kind of torturing her at this point. It's clear that she wants to go do something. So they split off from her and gave her the space that she needed, which I liked. That was like middle schoolers do have that level. Of, well, they Didn't they straight up say like something about why is she hiding her boyfriend from us or something like that? Yeah, they assume it's about a boy. Yeah, yeah, like, they like they were like way on the nose about it, which was fu- I was totally fine with. But yeah, I like that middle schoolers like the middle schoolers I knew were like conniving and smart like this for sure. <laughs> so they would know like to leave somebody alone in this situation. So that was nice. Um, so Akane runs off to the department store. And she's standing in front of like one of the entrances and it starts to rain. So she goes inside and then we cut to Kotaro who's running through the rain and he goes to like a different entrance to the department store because he hasn't been able to contact her. So he doesn't know where to meet her. And then he's running around the building to the other entrance and he gets to the entrance she was just in front of and she's not there anymore. And he keeps running down the street and then it turns out she was just inside and she comes out and it was a missed connection. So Kotaro is like, anxious to try and get any way to contact her now and he runs into Chinatsu who has her phone and he decides to go up to her and ask her to borrow the f- ask to borrow her phone but then he's really nervous about asking her for Akane's number but Chinatsu who's really smart figures out hey this is probably about Akane isn't it and he's like what are you how did you know and it's because when they were in that shop earlier, Chinatsu saw him look at her as she was like walking away. Oh, yeah. She made that connection right away. She made the connection really quick. So Chinatsu's a smart one. And so she's like, okay, I'll get Akane on the phone. And she dials her up. Uh, and then they meet up. Akane is upset because she got sort of stood up. But he explains like, look, I've got my phone taken away by the teacher. Uh, and Akane is really just more upset, upset that like they still can barely talk to each other. And she says, eventually, look, I just want to talk to you more. And he's like, is that your answer to my confession? And she says, yes. So despite being jealous of Chinatsu and upset at him, it actually sort of worked out at the end of this episode, which I thought was nice. Yeah. Uh, And she kind of gets mad at him a little bit. Yeah. But I want to point out one thing with the line app. It shows you if they've read your message so she should have known something was up if he never read her messages. 
Yeah, I thought that was a great point, because if you're going to do a show that's based around a modern technology like this, like make sure you write your way around that modern technology. Like, Yeah, and they, it's such a central point in the show of them using the line app. Yeah, so they, they should know that you would have de- delivery receipts. And like if he hadn't read the message, then you know that maybe he probably got his phone taken away. Yeah, yeah I'm just saying rather than standing at those stations looking angry and slightly disappointed or maybe slightly angry she Mm. should have had more of a maybe confused maybe pondering look on her face like huh something's up he hasn't read these why hasn't he yeah that's just what i got but and i hate to say this but just even from personal experience her slight overreaction is very believable for a middle school teenager oh not all just my just just most i mean it's just freaking hormones man (laughs) <laughs> yeah, everybody's crazy. <sighs> Let's move on to a show where the main girl has no problems with her hormones. <laughs> Just that they're in freaking overdrive and somebody won't take their finger off the nitrous button. <laughs> so Friday's Rage of Bahamut, Virgin Soul. Um, So we get... You, just before we I start this, you were just absolutely blown away by this episode. Yes, I was. As I watched it, I don't think it did anything different than the other episodes. I completely It's probably one of my least favorite ones, but <laughs> this is our other battle. If you guys haven't figured it out, we'll get we'll get to it when I get through the end. Uh, so Azazel is battling Cherios and his army in the middle of the town, and Cherios apparently doesn't care about his town because it's getting destroyed a lot every single episode. <laughs> and then the it show is a human this, town. And he's a demon, so it makes sense. Oh, Jesus. Uh, then the show does that thing where it looks like Azazel is losing before it cuts to the uh, OP. And then, surprise, he's not down for the count yet. So after putting up a good fight and taking out a ton of the dudes, uh, he pulls the idiot card and didn't make any countermeasures from the last time he fell into a trap. So, no surprise, he got caught in the same spell trap again. So let me stop you there. First, this is my first interjection. So you say he took out a bunch of dudes, but that scene was fucking incredible. So one of my the first thing I loved about this episode was the fight choreography. So in that first scene, after he comes out of the OP, he gets punched by an armored giant and gets sent flying across the square with dust and debris all along the way. All of this is animated unbelievably. He then flies in the air, uses his snake-like tentacles to wrap around the giant's legs as if he were a snow speeder taking down an AT-AT and Star Wars and topples it. It falls to the ground. He then plunges down from the air onto the giant's helmet with a sword, puncturing the helmet, making it explode. And then Leo said, oh yeah, he just took out a bunch of dudes. <laughs> this, this is no different than what this series has already been doing. So Not, I, not in this season, at least, though. This, I, this, is this was what I expected. unbelievable animation. That animation was so fluid and so good looking. Anyway. That was, that's why I loved that opening sequence. Also, yeah, uh, well, actually, we'll get to it later. Uh, next fight scene is also really good. <laughs> have you seen episode five? What is this episode? Have you seen episode five yet? I don't know if it's out yet, but no, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I watched it just before we started. Okay. Yeah. So anyways, we have Nina who's running towards where the battle is going because as of last episode, she's running to go help him. When she runs past um, Muguro and uh stomps and then i was uh i didn't like this part because conveniently azazel comes launching through the air and lands right between the two of them that accuracy 
Um, he should he could have landed near them, but to <laughs> conveniently land in between the fifteen foot strip between the two of them, I was like, show. I'll definitely this. give you that, but I will say that I love. I would have taken the street over and then him just running over to him real quick. Yeah. That would have been way more believable. It was just way too accurate but anyways I did, uh, I did like the sound effect as he like hit the ground like a meteor like and like the <laughs> dust effects that go by nina's face and like the wind blowing through her hair because of the, like explosion he causes uh, i just and also i love every time nina's running and like she has to stop herself and it takes her like 25 feet to skid to a Dude, stop nina is so the fast. tom cruise of the anime world do, do you know about how tom cruise is always shown running in every single movie oh yeah because yeah. he looks cool running uh-huh look, she looks yeah awesome running <laughs> it, it, any look up any trailer with uh tom cruise in it and i guarantee there's a running scene if not in the movie there's a scene of him running just because he looks really good while he's running that's totally a thing and nina is the tom cruise of anime <laughs> um so azazel is like trying to get back and go back to the battle and nina's like trying to stop him and then they get tangled up and of course they trip and fall and Nina's straddling him. Uh, she says to promise not to tell anybody her secret and to hug her. So Azazel's like all horny now too. I mean, when I didn't some, think he was that horny. I think he was just like, he was, he was like kind of reluctant to hug her in my opinion. He was like, fine. I think I'll he's do just this. shy. Yeah. He was like shy a little bit. And then, he but, like, but then he gets up his courage. And he lets a yell before he envelops her in a big hug. Yeah, <laughs> and I but so now that we're past that garbage, just hated that little scene. But don't get me wrong, I really love this show. It was yeah. just those two little things. I was like, dude, why is this in here? Okay, okay. So Nina transforms into full red dragon mode and goes after Cherios, who is doing his well. He is acting completely unfazed by the whole situation. Uh, that's when Kaiser Roll shows up and gets in between the two, causing Nina to hesitate. Cherios kind of notes this. But he already had his suspicions. So let me um, just pause here because you skipped over one thing that I really liked. It's where um, she gets trapped in that green ball of like electricity that uh, Cherios had been using on Azazel. But she's yep. so powerful as a dragon that she like breaks out of it and it shatters like glass. And then there's like a huge like shock wave as she like breaks out of it. And like you see like. Azazel has to like dig his sword into the town square just to keep himself from being blown away by the wind. Like it's so freaking cool the way it's animated. Uh, and no, then no, like she is. proceeds to just like burn up the entire town square. Yeah. Yeah. In this, at the end of this episode, the show does something to kind of reaffirm how powerful she is. Yeah. Um, that's when like this giant boomerang whacks her in the side of the head, which obviously doesn't do anything do any damage but it, it grabs her attention and then like with just this huge fiery blast scene of her just wrecking everything they finally retreat and then we get our naked nina butt shot this is the fan service episode so i didn't so here's my thing about that like make her lie naked in the street like if she's gonna transform back from a dragon oh it, it totally makes sense yes. yeah it, it makes sense like yeah i mean i this is just i'm adding for the next couple things where I think this was more fan servicey than what happens in the next scene. To be honest, though, the the just like lying naked in the street. I guess that's fan service. It, I think it was the lead it up. It makes to it. sense, though. It makes sense. No, so it does. It totally it makes sense. She transforms into a dragon. Her clothes get destroyed in the process. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so it, so after everybody's retreated, she's transformed back into herself, and uh, Bacchus and Rita show up to grab her. 
uh, in the carriage as Azazel is being treated, he says he knows that she is like a small Bahamut. Yep. There again, we have them reinforcing that she is on this whole other level of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we go back to a quick scene of Cherios questioning Kaiser about his relationship with Azazel and the Red Dragon. Kaiser tells him that Azazel killed his father and that he knew the Red Dragon was with him and let him go to try and contact the Red Dragon. Um, then after Kaiser leaves, Cherios says to himself that Kaiser is a bad liar. So yeah, that we know. He's a terrible liar. <laughs> yeah. All right. Then fan service scene. Nina awakens and we get a nice view of her cleavage from her perspective. That was That's, so tame, though. That like, was some you specific fan service. If barely. I ever saw it, it was if it okay. It, it may be fan service, but like I wasn't like turned on by that. <laughs> like you barely saw anything. Like it was nothing compared to that's, the other shows. That's we the watched. thing. It's the hint of almost being there, but not seeing the rest of it. You let your imagination do the rest. Okay, your imagination will always have the better. I would yeah, call that totally. tasteful fan service, though. Because okay. it's also her, it also makes sense because she's realizing that she doesn't have any clothes on. Like, so it's funny. So Nina, yeah, she gives us some backstory on how she found out what turns her into a dragon. Basically, it was she was younger and she's playing with little kids and they were jumping into the pond and like coming out as a dragon. She could never do it. But then she incidentally ran into like a young, handsome man. Like she was like, I don't know, 10 or 12. And, you know, that's when the age when young girls start finding out that, um, men are hot and but this guy was like 20 or something he's like are you okay and that's when she like first transformed to a dragon and like kind of wrecked the village a little bit yeah she shoots like a beam of fire into like these three waterfalls that overlook the village and like ma- this massive tidal wave comes and like wrecks the village it's really bad <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's, it's pretty cool um then there's this next scene that was sort of lost on me i don't know where he was going with this but azazel's motive was to say let me control you and make love to you. So you, apparently he said the word for embrace, but it can all that word in Japanese can also be taken for have sex with. So that's how Nina heard it. He was basically probably saying, I want to let me hug you so I can turn you into a dragon. But she okay. thought, and then, let me make love to you. That and so makes she a little bit better out. sense. So, but it's kind of a loss in translation thing. Yes. So then we get, Another quick shot, Nina's boobs under the sheet, and you put a not really. So yep. I took a screenshot and I put know. it on here. I'm what looking are at the you screenshot. About? That That's is not a boob shot. Than the first one, it's all covered. It's all. There covered. should be a nipple there. They just didn't put the nipple on it. Eh, maybe it's under her hand. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> this is like just off another to the left. boob shot. I was like, whoa. <laughs> but like, like the the focus of that shot for me was her clenching her hand. Uh, I to do me. too, but then I, at the same time, I was like, ah, it's a lot of boob. But it's like, it's still like so tame though, like compared to other fan service. So that's why, <laughs> like, I agree with you. It is showing her breasts. And like in most other occasions, I'd be like, oh yeah, this is fan service. But also, <laughs> at least she has like adult sized breasts. I think it was a clever way like to get the, the fan service out there by, you know, but yes. you're still showing the emotion of her clenching her hand. I'm like, ooh, you clever people. 
it makes sense in the context of the show, which most so, fan service doesn't. Anyways, I put down, I get it. She's got a great set. Now let me enjoy the show and not speculate <laughs> what I'm going to do with myself after the show ends. <laughs> so of course this causes Nina to flip out and run from the room and just this great running scene again, because we've already established she's the Tom Cruise of anime of running through the sheets with just a sheet tied, tied around her and just like screaming with a red face. It is a great, I love that scene so much. <laughs> it's really funny. So then to end out the episode, we have Cherios in this dungeon talking to who I am assuming is Muguro's mother, St. John de Arc. Yeah. Is that the same vibe you got? Yes, definitely. I felt proof. Yeah. Um, then there's a short scene after the uh, ending with a uh, Zazel is in what looks to be some underground ruins. He's down there to talk to some resistance group of demons and proclaims he will defeat the humans and take back their demon pride. Um, we really didn't learn anything from this, but that's what happened. And I was like, you didn't notice like the hot, like demon chick that they, met Oh, I totally noticed her. I love <laughs> demon cute. chicks. Totally. Uh, noticed. I loved this episode. I thought like the animation throughout was like completely top notch. Like, blowing away most everything that's airing this season except maybe recreators but that's really more about background art than animation in most yeah, the first season did that too yeah it did but like i still like like when you compare it to everything else that's actually airing it looks so much fucking better that i'm like wow this is what anime can look like if like the studios actually try instead of just making shitty fan service shows about lollies like it could like anime could be like this if you just had talented people allowed to work on good material. Uh, I just love like this, the, the story that's building in this episode, how they're slowly adding back in like the characters that we love, like John of Joan of Arc. Um, I like that she's back and that she's clearly involved with Muguro and that he was her child. And for some reason she had to sell him into slavery. And I love like the barely contained rage she's holding back when she looks at Cherios. like, God, he's going to get his someday. But, uh, <laughs> and also like, so since Muguro is an angel, does that mean that John Dark had sex with one of the angels? She prays to Michael, the archangel. So maybe she got it on with him. We'll see. He's the guy who looked like yeah, David she's, Bowie she's last season. She's human originally, right? Uh, yeah. So we'll have to see. Um, yeah. I, so I had like a whole bunch of notes. I think I covered most of it. It's just I thought the animation was amazing this episode. Like I would, I would go rewatch it just to see some of these things animated again. Uh, the fights were great. And it's, I think it's just like a great example of what we can expect later on when this show goes into overdrive. So, which I'm sure it will. Cause season one definitely did. Yeah. It was it episode seven where they just went balls to the walls and <laughs> Hell just yeah. crazy. Yeah. So oh, one final thing, one final thing. The, oh, okay. At the very end of the credits, uh, after like the thing where Rita is voice actress is like reading off the like, Baha, Baha, Baha show. It was, just, it was just really cute. I love her voice actress, like that dead, like lolly voice. It's really funny. So let's move on to the next show. All right. Saturdays, we have recreators. Episode three, don't worry about what others said. Just be yourself. Um, I just quick note. Uh, and my anime list has a Celestia main character, red hair girl mm-hmm. named Celestia. But in the show, they call her 
uh, Silesia. Yeah, I saw that. I'm going with what they say on Amazon for now. Yeah, and like I didn't pick up on it, so I wrote all my notes with Celestia, so I'm going to do my best to say Silesia I, I think they pronounce it on in the show like Celestia or Silesia, so... It's uh, like, maybe, yeah, it's like a know. hybrid of both. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Yuya has just saved all of them and is, uh, pressuring the magical Mamika who suddenly gets saved by darkness from Konosuba. I, I'm, <laughs> I mean, a beautiful blonde knight who rides a horse that can fly and it sounds like somebody revving a moped. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's kind of true. Dude, when it sprouts at wings, it goes, Ring! and I was like, <laughs> like, I almost had to stop and like look outside. I was like, is there somebody out there messing around on a moped? <laughs> Dude, it was killing me. <laughs> did you notice that at all? Or did oh, you yeah, just kinda... I noticed that sound effect. It, it was not the greatest one. <laughs> either, either somebody has broken to my backyard and is playing with the weed or there's a moped going by my house. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> So they're at a diner asking uh, Yuya if he understands the kind of situation they're in. And the answer is yes. He's also thought about long enough to elaborate on it a bit and suggest since uh, Silesia's creator is there, they should try to do some revisions. Maybe tweak her queer character a little bit, see if the author has a kind of power over the characters still, even though they're in the real world. Um, since Yuya is a cool guy character, he smokes a cigarette and leaves. <laughs> That's totally what that was. There's no way around it. This is they true. end up, yeah, they end up uh, up at Takashi's place, and they've called a meeting with his staff, which is just an illustrator illustrator name. How'd they say that? Marin, Marina, Marina, I Marina. Think. I, yeah. I read or it as Marine. Marine. Yeah, I mean that's how you would read it, but it's a Japanese pronunciation. So, and I work with a German girl, and her name is Marine, so that's like how I. Oh, interesting. See it, but whatever. Okay. Yeah. So, like, Marine is an actual name. is just German. Mm-hmm. So, Marine uh, shows up, who's a, a cute little character that B comes in love with. <laughs> she is pretty cute. She kind of has a face like those characters from, like, Bakuan. She's got, like, big, bushy eyebrows and, like, smiley face. She's cute. Yeah, so they decided to start to try and figure out if the author can still do these changes in some way. Um, they start off by writing Silesia's character info that now she has a flame spell and she tries it and it doesn't work. (laughs) Um, It's, was that the part where the music was in? No, no, Um, that's later on. Maybe. I'll get to that. Okay. Um, They they decide that maybe it needs to be illustrated also to add more information to her world for the changes to work properly. Marinay says she needs to she needs context to draw the scene, so they leave Taka Taka Takashi alone, so he can you know write up a quick scene for her, and they go to the living room to let him work. Um, it gives Marinay a good. I'm just calling marinara. I like marinara. Call people foods. It gives marinara a good chance to check out uh, Silesia since she's basically created her, you know. And they're like just going over her outfit and all that fun stuff, and it's just really cool. And they're they're both kind of having a little own moment. Uh, there's a part where Marinara gives out a future information to Celestia, and I just felt like it should have more of a reaction. Like she straight yeah. up told her that one of her friends betrayed her, and like her reaction is, "I'll just forget you ever said this." I'm like, what? Yeah, I guess she like just doesn't want to know about the future, and like she also doesn't like. I think she was kind of saying like to Mar- Marinara, like, "Don't feel bad that you just spoiled my entire future for me." She was trying to make it okay, even though it was like a really messed up thing she did. I agree with you. She might have reacted a little bit more. 
Yeah. Or, I mean, that could have been a whole plot plot point of an episode. Yeah. Of her accidentally saying that and then, you know, rightfully so, Silesia, you know, freaks out about it. <laughs> but anyways, uh, Takashi has finished and now hands off to Marinara to illustrate the scene. Uh, Sota takes note that, you know, she is super into it and having a great time. Mm-hmm. And he kind of sees, because he wants to be a good illustrator himself, but he kind of sees what he's lacking and what yeah. he should work on. He should learn to basically enjoy it more and do it for fun rather than just try to get something out. Yeah. So he ends up making coffee for the two girls and Silesia doesn't want it because at first coffee was never written to her world. So she has no idea what it is. She does end up trying in the end and she likes it, which was surprising because it was black. Yeah. Uh, she starts making comparisons and, this could be important later on and says that smells seem to be the biggest difference to her so far. And just reading lots of novels and stuff, that's usually one of the senses that never get brought up mm-hmm. unless they're describing a person or it's and very important to a scene. Like a lot of uh, novels I've been reading, like they'll say like, oh, this guy smells like cloves and cinnamon and this other guy smells like fresh laundry. And they bring it up a lot, but then that's the end of smell. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and for some reason she gives Soda, but what I feel like it was more for herself, a pep talk. It kind of came out of the blue, but like I said, I think she was trying to put off on Soda, but then it was more of a pep talk for herself. Uh, Marinara has finally finished, so they attempt the fire spell again, and this is where it does a really cool scene where it does the huge episodic music, and then the moment it fails, it just drops it. (laughs) I love those things. It was perfectly timed. It couldn't have been any better. (laughs) <laughs> it really like pulled me into the story. Right? Then I was like, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Meteora says that it wasn't about the lack of information. That is why they fail, but there's still another factor or type involved. Um, Sato suggests that might be the impression it leaves on the readers. As you've also noted, the popularity of all these characters is extremely high. So that's probably something that is yeah. important. Um, then in a weird fortunate turn of events, uh, Marinara was actually just offered a job by Meteora's publisher. So all she has to do now is say she has a cousin that wants a tour and they get to meet Meteora's creator. And then this final scene with the military girl, which all it does is raise questions, which I assume is completely intentional. Um, she said, apparently she has had past involvements with Sota, which is, Strange, because Sota has no memory of this. Yeah. And he is also part of the world that banished Silesia. Not entirely sure what she's talking about. And until the end of this world, she will always be Silesia's ally. These questions... Like, I'm fine with shows, like, you know, raising questions. It keeps your interest. But these were just so out there. I'm like, uh, should these be in later episodes, maybe? (laughs) And there's one more thing that happens at the end of the episode. It's Marine who says, hey, Meteora and Silesia, why don't you come live with me? And now Sota's life is wrecked. <laughs> yeah, no, but they didn't play on that at all. They like, didn't he play didn't on act- that. But I was like, yeah. I feel so bad for you, dude. You just had like two light novel girls living with you. And now they're going to they're not going to be there anymore. But they were discovering discover- that route <laughs> at all. None of the girls even acted half shy around him. It was. Yeah. In so, general, like, uh, I just like the building of the relationship between Silesia and her writer and illustrator in this episode. It is very good. 
I hope we get more of that with like the different characters moving forward. Like I hope we meet some like real despicable like creators, like who you would expect to write light novels <laughs> and like people are just like super pissed at them. It'll be interesting. But the, I, I, my slight dilemma is in like, then some of the uh, people from the characters that were created by the authors, they come to the world and then they're pissed at their creators. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't not blame them because they're like pissed at them. They're like, you created this horrible world. And then I'm like, you, you created this horrible world for your entertainment. And then from the author's perspective, I'm like, I had no idea you were even r- real. Of yeah. course, you know, they went, I created this for entertainment purposes, not to mess up your life. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. But are they actually kind of delve into that next episode? Yes. So I'll drop that for now. So, yeah, let's move on to My Hero Academia Season 2, Episode 17, Strategy, Strategy, Strategy. Uh, so, everyone is staring evilly at Deku since he's worth 10 million points in this cavalry, cavalry battle. He's the main target, and he realizes the weight that All Might's had on his shoulders the whole time with every other hero competing with him all the time to be the very best. So, each team in the cavalry battle is going to wear a headband with their team's total point total on it. So you're, you have to grab other teams' headbands before the time runs out and wear them from the neck up, somewhere from the neck up. And even if you get your headband stolen, you're not out of the match. You can still battle to get them back. So I was going to say, like, none of this really matters because Deku's team has, like, a 10 million point value. So, like, if you want to win this and be the best hero, you have to take down Deku. Uh, so Deku is thinking to himself who he wants on his team. Uh, a couple of pro heroes are musing about how the first two events have really been accurate for pro hero life after the academy. Sometimes you have to knock your fellow heroes down a pick to show how good you are, like in the obstacle course. But you also have to cooperate with others at times, like in this cavalry battle. So a bunch of Bakugo's classmates beg him to let them join his team. But since he's so self-centered, he admits he doesn't even know what perks they use. So Kirishima, who has the hardening quirk, convinces him that he'll be a steady horse for Bakugo to ride. That poss- can't possibly take another way, any other way. <laughs> and then they'll just go after the 10 million together. Uh, meanwhile, everyone is avoiding Deku like the plague. But of course, the magical smiley Ochako shows up and asks to be on his team. Uh, she smiles so brightly, in fact, that he almost can't look at her as he wipes the tears off his face. Uh, Deku has a plan. And if they can just get Ida on their team, uh, Ochika would make both of them lighter with her quirk and to be able to run away from everyone the entire team, uh, the entire time. Uh, but Ida says to Deku that he won't join. Uh, he realizes that like he needs to start shining on his own and this is his chance to beat Deku. So Deku's upset, but he moves on. Uh, when things are looking bleak, like nobody's going to join, that gadget girl from before, Mei Hatsume, from the support class, asks to be part of Deku's team. And she really only wants to be part of the team so she can show off her gadgets, her babies, as she calls them. Uh, I like her the, crazy eyes. Her crazy eyes are great. Uh, <laughs> to show off to like the corporations that are watching. And uh, so she gives him a jetpack that he recognizes from one of his favorite heroes she modeled after. So he's really into it. So they've got three now, but meanwhile, he knows he needs one more person to complete his team. 
Uh, so he walks over and places his hand on somebody's shoulder. You don't know who it is yet. And it turns out that person was the bird-headed Tokoyami when the cavalry battle starts. So Deku's team immediately gets attacked once the match starts, and their plan is to run away, but they get caught in this like quicksand-like perk almost immediately. So they're sinking, but then Deku turns on his jetpack, and everybody holds on to him, and they blast off in the sky. Uh... But then they get attacked by that girl who has like plugs for ears. But Tokoyami, the uh, bird-headed guy, uses his dark shadow to guard their blind spot and fend off the attacks. And they're able to fly because Ochika is using her power to make it so she's the only one in their group who has weight. Everybody else is just weightless. So it's just basically carrying her weight around. Uh, However, they land for some reason. I mean, I guess they just can't do it for extended periods of time. Uh, maybe the jetpack doesn't have infinite fuel, so they have to kind of conserve, but it would have been pretty useful to just stay in the air the whole time. Uh, they get attacked by the unlikely trio of Mineta, Suya, and like this like tentacle dude who is like hiding him. He's hiding them like behind his skin, basically. Uh, he has like these giant like arm wings he can yeah. morph around. So they're like in a, yeah. like a little pod he's created above his head and they're like they're like shooting Mineta's like sticky balls out and like Suya's trying to like attack them with their her tongue. So uh Mineta like gets one of the sticky balls like caught underneath like their boots and like uh what is it? The Deku uses this jetpack to like blast off. They lose a little part of like one of the boots, but it's okay. But then Bakugo is thrusting himself up into the air now. He's jumped away from his group, which you're not really supposed to do. But since he's in midair, it's okay. Uh, but like Tokoyami, again, is able to like defend from what would have been like a massive explosion. Uh, and Bakugo is caught by the rest of his horses uh, when he falls. And like the announcers are like, so he says he didn't touch the ground. There's no penalty. But if he had touched the ground, he would have been out or penalized. So the announcers are talking. They they notice that like Class A is doing really badly. Uh, there's this one team from Class B who's been sneakily stealing the headbands off of other groups uh, as they've been focused on like Deku or each other. Uh, and they even get one from Bakugo's team, and they like explain their strategy, and they're they were basically watching everybody as they went through the obstacle course, hanging back, knowing that they, if they finished in a certain place, they would probably get through to the second round. So now they just collected a bunch of information and now they're using it against everybody. And now Bakugo's super pissed at them and wants to take them down. Uh, meanwhile, Deku's team comes face to face with Todoroki just at the end of the episode. And he realizes he's not going to be able to run away anymore and he's going to have to stand and fight. And that's where the episode ends. Uh, this is a pretty fun one. Um, at first I was like, man, just because since there's 10 million points, like nothing else matters, but I realized like, yeah, actually second place and third place matter as well for these teams. and fourth and fourth. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I guess there is some incentive to like not go after the main guy like that class B was doing and just get as many headbands as you can come in second place. So yeah. Yeah. And there's plenty of other big ones out there that will alone so solidify a second and third and fourth place spot so that's true yep but i mean like if you're a hero you want to be the very best don't you like no one ever was <laughs> i was going to say it but you beat me to it <laughs> let's move on mm-hmm. so we have attack on titan season two which is awesome <laughs> episode 29 soldier we begin with a two hours earlier before the Titans started attacking them. 
at the tower. It's basically a scene to just give a quick recap of the whole situation. Is there actually a hole in the wall? Shouldn't there be more Titans if there was? What happened to all the people in Connie's village? Why is Ymir acting suspicious as fuck? <laughs> when, so when Chris is talking, uh, Ymir does this thing where she watches her out of the very corner of her eyes. Yeah. Like she's very worried about something she might say or do. I'm not sure. And then she goes, starts to act, Ymir starts to act completely out of character when Connie is talking about his village. Um, she's like trying to make a joke or riff on him. I'm not sure. Yeah. So then we get this really awesome scene with Ymir rummaging around searching for food. When Reiner asks her what she's up to, uh, she's like, I'm just looking for some food and stuff. And she picks up this can and she just kind of nonchalantly looks at it. She's like, oh man, herring. I don't even like it, but I guess I'll give it a try. And then Reiner's like, hey, can I see that? And he picks it up and then he suddenly gets this terrified look on his face. And he's like, how do you know what this language is? Ymir. Yeah. And she gets this panic looked on her face. And then the Titans attack. <laughs> um, but it was a great scene because I love that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Reiner's like, yo, how <laughs> do you know to read this? This immediately makes you suspicious as fuck. Is this also the but, scene where, uh, where he's like, uh, Amir, don't you like, he's she's like reiner why are you like so interested in girls like or something like that or, or like don't you not like girls it was really weird it was like talking about reiner's sexuality. no he said said don't you not like guys and then he's like well don't you just love girls or something like that yeah yeah but then you get a later scene with reiner and he's like he's not gay <laughs> but it's in my notes i'll get to that okay so like i just said the titans attack and all the re- yeah i don't know what that scene was about it's really weird and i didn't delve on it because it didn't lead anywhere but anyways, all the recruits are ordered to go downstairs and make a barricade. Uh, Reiner goes ahead, goes farther below to see how far the Titans have gotten. He eventually gets to a door, and when he opens it, there's a Titan right there on the other side of the door, and it sparked a bunch of memes. Did you see any of them? No, I didn't. What was it? <laughs> oh, man. There's like, they open the door, and it'd be like Trump, or it'd be like just oh, all God. like different people, things that would make you scared and close it <laughs> that's funny um but anyways he's trying to barricade it you know and the titan's coming through the door and he's actually about ready to bite it when the other recruits uh which is like basically ymir and krista and connie uh show up with a cannon and then they roll <laughs> it down the stairs to take out the titan yeah they can't actually fire it so they're like we're just gonna roll it down the stairs <laughs> yeah i mean it's a big way yeah it just stops time um, they're getting ready to decide to go back upstairs and barricade that door when a Titan comes out of the dark directly between, behind Connie. Um, Reiner is a total badass and pushes Connie out of the way, letting the Titan chomp down on his arm. Yeah. And I just said Reiner's a badass. Hmm. So then he proceeds to lift the Titan onto his back and walk <laughs> towards a window while it's still just like all on his arm. That was fucking uh, awesome. It was pretty cool scene i mean this right it just sets reiner up as a badass i'll say for the third time i don't care uh connie then runs over with a knife and manages to dislodge its jaw getting reiner's arm out its mouth but he didn't quite get it thrown out the window it's still in the window frame and as it starts to turn around ymir is all like uh you ain't messing with us no more and then just epically kicks him out the window (laughs) (laughs) it was just like whoa where'd that come from (laughs) 
There's a funny scene where they're recovering from the near brush of death and Reiner's getting his arm bandaged by Krista. She's saying all these things that things that I've already forgotten about, but <laughs> Reiner makes a me- mental note that gotta marry her. So gotta he's marry not her. <laughs> he's not gay. No, yeah, so that's a good point. Yeah. I lost it. And then Ymir says something like I need bandage up too. And Connie's all like, it's just a splinter. Amir <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wants cute Moe bandages too. Oh man. Yeah. Um, so the four scouts are still outside kicking ass when a boulder comes flying out of nowhere and just takes out all their horses. And they're just kind of hanging there on the side of the wall, wondering like, what, 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 what just happened? And then that's when a second boulder comes flying in and takes out two of the scouts instantly where they just lost half of their fighting force force just out of nowhere. At the same time, a second and larger wave of Titans are advancing towards their tower. At this point, everybody's made it to the roof and they just don't find it a, qu- a coincidence that the second wave was perfectly timed with the uh, boulders being thrown, which was coming from the Gorilla Titan on the wall. It's too much like a strategy to... To not think this was pre-planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two remaining scouts, Nanaba and Gelgar, uh, go out to fight the Titans, even though they are both low on gas for their gear. At some point, Gelgar took a head wound, mm-hmm. and he's talking to Nanaba, and he falls from the wall into a Titan's hand. Uh, Nanaba repels down and manages to save him and gets him flung inside like a hole in the wall, but. Nanaba has now suddenly run out of gas and is now at the mercy of the Titans. She's way too low. They can get to her. Uh, Gelgar starts to come to, but is grabbed by a Titan through the hole. And importantly, on his way out, gets his, the back of his head knocked out. Mm-hmm. So knocking him unconscious. So out of the four scouts, three of them have died instantaneously, basically unknowingly. Unfortunately, Nanaba makes up for all this. Uh, We get this gruesome shot of her being pulled in two directions by two Titans. One leg is already gone. Yeah. And she's just like screaming about her father and like, I won't do it again, dad. I won't do it again. That was really hard to watch. Oh, geez. It was, oh, it was crazy. That's when this larger Titan comes in and rips her from the other two and like brings her to his mouth and like i said she's sitting there screaming that and then it the, the shot cuts to ymir and krista watching this with absolute horror on their faces and you still hear none of us screaming about this she's like i just won't do it again father please i just won't do it again yeah. and then she's being cut off by hearing the crunching of her head as the titan snaps into her like a slim jim <laughs> fuck you <laughs> Oh yeah! <laughs> Snap into a Slim Jim. <laughs> oh God, she was just like so heroic throughout this episode. She was, and then they just gave her a brutal death. Oh, it was really, it was really yeah. gruesome, even for Attack on Titan. Ah, uh, jeez. Well, that's kind of what Attack on Titan's known for—is just being unforgiving with their deaths. Yeah. yeah, like they they talked her up so big and so good, and then just yeah, no justification for the way she died oh god but anyways 
Uh, Ymir asks for the knife from Connie and tells Krista to please remember their promise from when they were training in the snowy mountains, which is apparently the next episode that I have to review and I think it might be boring. Uh, that's when she just leaps over the edge of the tower and all dramatically cuts her arm, transforming into a chibi titan. Ymir. Which is weird because she's like a really tall woman in the show and she transformed into a chibi titan. I was like, what? So that explains maybe why she was able to read this ancient language or wherever this language came from, at least. Yeah, she's bas- she's obviously aware she can transform into a Titan. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is she so sought after Krista? Because we know Krista is important. You thought she was a Titan. Yeah, I, I knew. I thought it was between Amir and Krista. And I was like, are we getting a Moe girl Titan? <laughs> yeah. And oddly enough, when I was reading the manga, for whatever reason, I thought it was uh, Reiner. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure why, but I, like I've said, I've read Farther Ahead in the manga. I actually already know Krista's secret, mm-hmm. which is, is pretty good. But, uh, yeah, Ymir, so obviously when I watched this time, I wasn't surprised. I knew, so. I also like the, so that right before Gelgar gets pulled out of the tower, he, like, finds this bottle of liquor that he had, they had used to, like, um, what's it called? Disinfect like Disinfects, like, Reiner's arm after it had been bitten into. Uh, and so he's like, oh, yes, finds, like, one last sip of alcohol before I die. And he goes to drink it, and there's no drops in there. And he he's like, what the hell is this joke? And then he sees you see like the Titan eye in the window behind him before it. Yeah, that hole. Yeah, that is everything about the second half of this episode. It's just so unsettling. Uh, But yeah, like I said, the other three scouts got. One was unconscious. The other two were killed. The other two were killed instantaneously. And then just I'm going to go right back to it. But Nanaba is they make her death up for it. Holy crap. Yeah. And she was the one, I mean, the most least deserving of it, you know, from how we're led to believe she was the most heroic, the best of the best. Yeah. She was going to catch them all. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, do you have anything else that you would like to add to the show? I do not. Uh, So let's wrap it up for this week. Uh, Thank you for listening. Remember to like, follow, and subscribe to us on YouTube to get updates on new podcasts or videos. And follow us on Twitter at Nerdum and Other for updates as well. If you like anime and you like bad anime, we also just put up the first episode of Drink Your Way through Arrow Manga Sensei, which... Which is great. (laughs) That turned out way... I thought it was going to be really good. It turned out really, really, really good. (laughs) Yeah, it's a commentary track. Uh, We actually started with episode four of Arrow Manga Sensei, so we would both have fresh, brand new impressions when we watched it. And it turned out pretty well. So if you want to see it because you get the reaction of both of us going, oh, at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) So please go enjoy that video. Uh, And yeah, we will see you next week. Peace. Later. Later.